minimize invention. And that's where the B2 ran into problems because, you know, for that time, that date and time, it was invent almost everything. And at the time they had to do that. So I don't criticize the B2. They actually did a reasonably good job. It cost a lot of money. It took a lot of time. But at that time, they didn't have the technology. So the idea is fast forward 30 years, we have some technology that we can leverage. And does it meet the requirements? And it turned out the answer is absolute. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm J.J. Gertler. Vago Maradian will be back next week. With major aircraft programs taking decades to put hardware on the ramp, the U.S. military is increasingly turning to rapid acquisition to make their new platforms more relevant. Until recently, Randy Walden ran the Air Force Rapid Capabilities Office, and he joins us to explain the secret sauce that lets the B-21 and other programs speed up time. We also have a few of the week's headlines in air power. And as usual, it's all powered by GE. GE Aerospace is advancing revolutionary engine technologies for this decade and beyond, and the XA-100 adaptive engine is tested and ready to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA100. And Bell sponsors the Defense and Aerospace Report's daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. GE Aerospace sponsors this program and our naval coverage. And Spirit Aerosystems Defense and Space sponsored our coverage of the Air and Space Force Association's Airspace Cyber Convention. In this week's headlines, the Navy has issued an RFP for a program to recap the Takamo aircraft, finally replacing the E-6 Mercuries, which were made from surplus Boeing 707s. Interesting thing about this RFP is that it's not for the entire system. The Navy has already decided that they want whatever this system winds up being to go onto a C-130J airframe. And in other former 707 news, this week saw the last flight of the E-8J Stars. In some ways, it's a miracle it lasted this long. That aircraft was thrown into Operation Desert Storm as an early prototype just to see what could be done with it. It turned out to have a pretty good career. Those were also converted from 707 airliners, although some of them had been used to transport cattle in South America. And crews said that on a hot day, you could still tell which those were. The Government Accountability Office came out with a report on sustainment of the F-35, and boy, they weren't happy. Now, GAO often is unhappy. Their job is to look at forensic accounting and see what went wrong in a program. Quick aside, there are three such congressional support agencies. The Congressional Budget Office looks at the future and says, if we do this, it will cost that. The Congressional Research Service focuses on the decisions immediately or coming soon before Congress. And the GAO looks at past decisions to see how they came out. Well, the past they seem to have a big problem with is the assignment of F-35 support contracts to the original manufacturer and a small number of other firms without much in the way of competition. That's led to shortages in spare parts, unavailable technical data, and insufficient depot capacity to keep the F-35s flying more than at about a 55% readiness rate. You can be sure there's lots more to come on this story. In good F-35 news, the Norwegians have now demonstrated its ability to operate from standard roads, so the agile combat environment now includes your local interstate. Austria has joined the countries deciding to replace their aging C-130 fleet with Embraer C-390s. 
The 130's basic design is 70 years old, so don't be surprised to see a lot more announcements like this and possibly some more competitors in the field. There are enough Hercs around the world to make it worthwhile for companies to develop something specific for that market. And there's a new member of the Global Fast Jet Fighter Club. Aviation Week reports that the Houthi movement in Yemen were able to restore an abandoned Yemeni F-5 and take it for a spin. They don't have a lot of weapons to put on it or a lot of support equipment for it, but they got the plane and they put it in the air, so there's one more for your World Air Force's bingo card. We'll be back with Randy Walden right after this. And hey, if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts. Cabas Ships, hosted by Chris Cabas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our new technology report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. It's a privilege to welcome Randall Walden to the show. Randy, until recently, ran the Air Force Rapid Capabilities Office. It's an office not that many people may know about, but which has a big effect on how the service acquires systems. Sir, welcome to the Air Power Podcast. Thanks, JJ. It's a privilege to be here, and uh, great to see you again. Very good to have you. The RCO has been around a lot longer than people realize. There's been a lot of emphasis lately on rapid capabilities acquisition, but you were involved with this and the office was set up more than 20 years ago. Where did it come from? How was it created and how did you wind up there? So the history goes back to right around the turn of the century, right around 2000. At the time, what I call the founding fathers of the RCO, was a guy by the name of Dr. Pete Aldridge. He was the Undersecretary mm -hmm. of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics. The Secretary of the Air Force at the time was Dr. Jim Roche. And the Chief of Staff of the Air Force at the time was General John Jumper. Those were the three original founding fathers. And they got together and started discussing how they wanted to change things from a defense acquisition perspective. And of course, everybody thought, well, they, they were frustrated with acquisition. That would not be true. They were frustrated both the requirements process and acquisition process, and they wanted to do something about it. So you're starting to get a sense of leadership in changing times. And so the good news is, as they were discussing this, uh, two individuals, including myself, got invited to some of those early meetings. The other guy was a guy by the name of uh, Dave Hamilton. You may know DH. Mm -hmm. uh, he and I were brought in early to kind of formulate uh, what these senior leaders were talking about. And when it was all said and done, right around, you know, 2001, 2002 timeframe, they got very serious about, okay, let's stand up what they were referring to as a DOD skunk works. And it was Dr. Roche that basically explained to uh, Dr. Aldridge, hey, you know what, the services actually execute. So let me give this a shot. I'll take off with it. And if I don't do well, then I'll turn it back over to you because Pete Aldridge was looking to do a uh, more purple organization at the OSD level. And, you know, normally that doesn't turn out very well. And that's what was uh, the concern that Secretary Roach had at the time. So Jim Roach kind of won the argument. And April of 2003, the stand-up letter of the RCO. And that was 20 years ago. And so the good news, when Dave Hamilton and myself got together, we were asked to formulate what would it look like when you organize this type of an acquisition organization. And so the good news is the history of the United States has plenty of examples of where we could lean on some of those examples and do well. 
And two come instantly to mind. I shared this many, many times in front of, you know, uh, Air Force Association briefings back when I was in the RCO. The one good organization back to Skunk Works was a guy by the name of Kelly Johnson and the uh, Lockheed Skunk Works. No he question. had 15 rules. And if you think about it, we leverage most of those rules that make sense today. And I'll, I'll touch on those briefly as we get into the model. You know, before that, there was another organization in its infancy back in the 60s, and it was became the National Reconnaissance Office. And in those early days, it had a very tailored and streamlined way of acquiring systems to meet national security needs. So we already had foundational organizations, and we borrowed those thoughts and moved forward with what became our RCO charter. And then I'll get into that a little bit more. But the objectives for the organization were very, very simple. Expedite the fielding of critical combat capabilities to the warfighter. So that's about as simple as it gets. But more important to that is enhance the material responses to those warfighters. Think combat air forces and combatant commanders. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, and here's the key piece, push the bounds of performance for capability delivery. Think tailoring and streamlining acquisition which really gets down to the simple principle of avoid bureaucracies that slow things down. The organization has focused on acquisition. You mentioned that part of the initial inspiration was changing the requirements process. Has DOD and or the Air Force also been able to help on that front? Yes. I would say it took years to make that happen. They, you know, Right now, the Joint Staff still has their JSITS process. Mm -hmm. But one, one of the things we've learned over time, that's more policy than law. So working with the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs, multiple, multiple, it turned out that um, those particular individuals also wanted to streamline and they were very forthcoming in trying to help us speed through that process to the point where I know when I was, you know, the RCO director, I'd go in and see the vice chairman on a monthly basis. And in some cases, he basically said, hey, can you guys go do this? And basically, he mm -hmm. set the requirement. And we turned around and came back and said, here's what we can do while informing our board of directors. Let me touch briefly on the charter and how we formed our board of directors and why. So that really is codifying what tailoring and streamline really looks like, basically adhering to all statutes and following policies within the Department of Defense that makes sense. So if you're familiar with DOD 5000, that is the acquisition policy that tells us how we do things. And if you're ever bored, you're not, you can't sleep well, read the whole thing. <laughs> but, but, but I would suggest that what, what you ought to focus on, which we did, there's a section in there called tailoring and streamlining. And so what we did is we basically codified that section in our charter. And we knew at the time the way we actually execute programs has to have a governance and oversight body that makes sense. Well, the original board of directors were the three founding fathers. So think about it. The head of DOD acquisition at the time, Dr. Pete Aldridge, the service acquisition executive by statute, which is the secretary of the Air Force, which delegates it down to the SAF-AQ. So he was a board member. So Dr. Roche, and then, of course, the chief of staff of the Air Force, which was head of requirements for the Air Force. So imagine that we're rounding out both acquisition and requirements, Title 10 authorities as our governance and oversight. And we formulated it in terms of more of like a, how a company is viewed with a board of directors, if that makes sense. Now you've got governance, you've got an organization. 
what do you start to do with it? So the one thing you need to do is, uh, again, set a model out that, that actually makes sense. The charter was our guiding light, so to speak, and mm -hmm. it codified what true defense acquisition tailoring and stream looks like. But there's three components of that, which I call kind of that, that secret sauce. And one was access. So think of it, you know, everybody thinks of, you know, basically access to programs. That's not it at all. It's all about access to the senior leadership mm -hmm. and not just the senior leadership of the board of directors, but in the Air Force, the senior leadership, Secretary of the Air Force, the chief, and when the Space Force was formed, the chief of space operations, and then the head of acquisition within the service, so in this case, SAF-AQ, and when Space Force was created, SAF-SQ. Access to those senior leaders is critical for us executing in a timely fashion. Also, the Pentagon access is critical. Imagine this, that you're actually going in to see a number of senior leaders to let them know where we are and need their help to basically move forward. Mm -hmm. So just a couple of them is the glass doors on the third floor. So imagine meeting with the deputy secretary of defense, which I'd met with uh, at the time it was Bob work when he was the DepSec Def multiple times because he liked the way we were executing and also the joint staff. So imagine the vice chairman on a monthly basis. And then finally access to Congress. I don't know how many times I've got uh, phone calls from either staff directors or staffers on any one of the defense committees suggesting that, hey, come over and talk to us about it, give us an update on, pick whatever program. But most of them were interested very much in the B-21 as we were executing. Sure. So the access, I think, in my mind is critical, but it's not just talking to individuals. The individuals, those senior leaders actually need to be a part of that culture, meaning that they're willing to support the program and the individuals executing the program in a manner that actually moves us forward as opposed to continue to admire problems. Now let's move on to resources. And I mentioned the board of directors. That was a key resource. Having the Title X authority as the governance and oversight cut out a lot of what I'll say is that frozen middle. And that's where a lot of programs get hung up on always trying to not make mistakes through process. And when your product is processed, guess what? You don't deliver products. So in my mind, the charter with those board directors was a huge resource. Also within that charter, we had an internal POM process of which the service secretary, so think the secretary of the Air Force and the chief staff of the Air Force agreed on. And every time I'd gone on to update them, they loved the process because they had direct insight into what we were doing and how we were doing it. And then finally, the resources think people. And we had, for the military folks, our selective hiring through the Green Door. And if you're familiar with that, we use that. And we also kind of modified the civilian hiring similar way where we do interviews in a manner that allowed us to hire some of the best qualified folks to round out the team. What we created in the RCO was really a melting pot of expertise to execute those programs. So imagine this, not just a program manager, but contracting officers, financial managers, lawyers, etc., that allows us to actually have this melting pot of expertise to continue to refine, if required, even change some of the contracting to allow us to execute on a timetable that makes sense for the warfighter and the taxpayer. Now, the final piece, and this is the secret sauce, culture. If your mindset is product over process, you'll find that you're focused more on delivering warfighting capability and dealing with all of those that want to admire problems. And also, we set up an organization that was more flat. Think uh, at the time, Lockheed Skunk Works. So a lot of them call it horizontal. So it wasn't 
as though we had to go through all these vertical processes on programs. In my mind, we were following the statute where the program manager worked directly for the PEO, which was Dave Hamilton in the early days and then me ultimately towards the end, and then direct to the service acquisition executive and the defense acquisition. That's the statute, and we followed that as closely as possible. And then, of course, everybody talks about empowering people. We did it. So we basically tried to push decisions at the lowest level. Now, there are certain things that a PEO had to do and certain things that a defense acquisition executive had to go do. We would follow that statute. But if we could make decisions at the lowest level, we did that. That model really rounds out what it really looks like to take managed risk and deliver disruptive capabilities. You've got the secret sauce. You have the recipe. Can that be applied to a program that is already underway, or does it really have to start within the RCO framework to be more successful? Well, I think it can be applied. And again, I I mentioned DOD 5000, which is the acquisition regulation of how all programs are supposed to follow. Remember, DOD 5000 is littered with a whole bunch of paragraphs and wording in there that really gets after making sure that programs don't make mistakes. And what you find is that turns into risk aversion, of which I was trained for four decades of don't make a mistake. So what you find is, is everybody says, no, no, take chances, take risks. But in essence, what happens is when you get in the process, it doesn't happen. So in my mind, we have the policy and we have the statutes that allow us to take those risks and deliver this disruptive capability. Now it's just a matter of actually building it in a manner that makes sense. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So um, you can do your own charter. That's possible. And I shared that with, at the time, uh, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Bob Work. And so the idea here is if you set that charter up that's mindful of trying to you know, deliver products as opposed to deliver process, it does work. An example, the space RCO was created, I think, in the 2018 NDAA. And I still recall there was a, there was a lot of frustration from Congress on space acquisition, also frustration within the Pentagon on space acquisition. So you start to get a sense, okay, what do we do about it? Now, I'd been going over to the Hill many a times. They said, all right, you know, tell us how this works. So I gave them what I'm essentially sharing with you right now. And in that NDAA, they created basically law that said, okay, here's how we want to stand up a space RCO. And that was just before the Space Force was created. But I bring that up because that's one example of Congress and the Pentagon following something that made sense and at the timing for space acquisition, if that makes sense. That's organization, and you've got that. You've got a culture with people. Let's talk about technical requirements because there are probably some things you've observed across a range of programs that are going to help make a program work better. You mentioned the most famous program, RCOs associated with B-21. And I remember when Hill staff and others were first briefed on it, one of the key elements that was heavily emphasized was the intention to allow no subsystem on that program that wasn't already at technology readiness level seven, essentially making it an integration program rather than a development program. How has that specific requirement worked out? But what are the other elements that need to be in a program from the beginning to help make it successful? No, that's that's a good question. I'll touch on that briefly. Um, but again, I think that's overstated on what the Hill was asking us to go do. They, what, what we really did was is leverage existing technology. And from that 
can we actually build the next generation bomber? And it turns out the answer is yes. That doesn't mean that integration risk doesn't exist. It absolutely exists. So it still requires quite a bit of development to make that happen. So a TRL of a radar or a radio or you name it at a high level doesn't guarantee that you can just put it in any platform. You still have integration risk associated with it. So the goal was minimize invention. And that's where the B2 ran into problems because you know, for that time, that date and time, it was invent almost everything. And at the time they had to do that. So I don't criticize the B2. They actually did a reasonably good job. It cost a lot of money. It took a lot of time. But at that time, they didn't have the technology. So the idea is fast forward 30 years, we have some technology that we can leverage. And does it meet the requirements? And it turned out the answer is absolute. So that's what we embarked on is leveraging where we could and not have to invent technologies to actually put it on this integrated bomber. Turns out that worked quite well. That didn't mean that we were immune to having problems. We've had a few and you've seen that in the press. And so the idea here is instead of admiring the problem and trying to look at it and take a year to make a decision, it's find out the problem, work the details from the systems engineering point of view and make a decision and move on. And that happened multiple times. There's some good examples out there. I'll touch on since we're on the B-21, there's a couple of articles that have been out in the press. The first one was um, the one I read. You may have read this paper. It was a Naval postgraduate paper dissertation, and it was released in June of 2022. The author of that was Adam Young. And the title of it was The Bomber Will Always Get Through, colon, the origin of the B-21 stealth bomber. It really does a good job of capturing the history of bombers in general, all the way through the B-2, all the way up to the decisions that were made based on the B-21. Critical to the B-21 was the restarts that happened on multiple you know, transitions out away from the B-2. But finally, in February of 2011, the Secretary of Defense, Gates, Mm-hmm. He signed a memo out that had two requirements in there, essentially. And it's in this paper. One, the cost of the next generation, in this case, the long-range strike bomber, uh, think B-21, can't be greater than $550 million per aircraft, average procurement unit cost in base year $10. That was number one requirement. So he set the appetite using dollars, which makes sense. And then the second one was, and the Air Force RCO is going to execute the program. Those are essentially his two requirements from the beginning, and that was in 2011. And from that date on, as we go through the normal risk reduction phases, you know, essentially putting together RFPs, then go into the development phase, which really is source selection. That's the beginning of that. And then down select on who it was and the histories out there on when uh, Northrop was picked. And then through a protest period and then moving on with development and into production, all of which has been in the press for many, many years. So that's the first article. And it does a really good job, if you've not read it, it covers all of the bases, including the B-21. And then the second article, which I found interesting, I actually went to the B-21 rollout December of last year. It was good to see you know, all the familiar faces and all the folks that made it happen. But there was an article done by Defense News following the rollout, and it was uh, dated uh, January 10th, 2023, and it was uh, the defense article was all about interviewing two secretaries of the Air Force, Deborah James and Heather Wilson, 
And they actually did a very good job of covering why the RCO was picked and why the B-21 went to the RCO in that time frame. And it covers kind of the ups and downs, both on the Hill and in the Pentagon. It does a good job of covering what I'm kind of describing today as uh, our way forward uh, using RCO uh, charters and RCO model. And of course, the B-21 is the best known example. But what are some of the programs that we haven't heard as much about or that you are proudest of or that really illustrated an acquisition lesson that others can learn from? Yeah, I'll touch on two. And I've done I've done this publicly many, many times before. And so you've seen this in the press. I covered air. Now I'm going to cover space. And then I'm going to talk on command and control. B-21 is a good example of the air portion of it. And I think we're starting to see the transition from development into production, serious production, and then flight tests. So let me touch on space. So the X-37B, the orbital test vehicle, uh, it's been out in the press many, many times, and it's essentially an unmanned reusable space vehicle. And its purpose in life was to do experimental testing to demonstrate technologies, not only for reliable, reusable, unmanned space test platforms, but also for other space-related activities that could buy down risk to increase that tech readiness level. So it was a workhorse. And that was, we got that program in 2004, I think a year after we basically stood up the RCO to start executing that program. And it truly was a workhorse when it came to doing space development and reducing risk on technologies that were space related. And it's still operating today. And rough order magnitude, you've seen this in all the uh, uh, releases out there. Once launched, it's on orbit about two years, gets through all of its uh, testing, and then basically mm -hmm. comes back and recovers. And in yeah. some cases, some of the technology will come back and it's looked at by not only us, but other programs to actually improve on how it's gonna be used operationally. Sure, we know when it comes and goes, we just don't know what it does in between. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of things. There was one that was put out there where we did, we basically took solar uh, energy and turned it into RF energy. That was one that was a Naval Research Lab uh, experiment. So on and on and on. And that's one of the space programs. And now let's move to command and control. So one of the things that Dave Hamilton and I realized when we were starting, we were kind of following the same tradition of Primes, once you put them on contract, you're kind of beholden to a highly proprietary stovepipe technical solution. And what we found at the time, we need to kind of move away from that, especially as data is starting to come out and think family of systems. How would we actually share that data more naturally as opposed to trying to have to go back and change contracts? So we asked the primes that were supporting us at the time to create a standard, which became the Universal Command and Control Initiative, UCI which really was based on the internet. So think XML, HTML type message formats, but using militarized type messages. And so it turns out you could actually start to do a better job sharing. And so when we looked at this document, we said, this is great, but you know what? We really need to actually prototype it. And so the prototype became what's referred to today as the Common Mission Control Center, CMCC. And you've seen that in the press, I'm sure, which really touched on us moving out on how to share data in a more 21st century command and control architecture. And it worked really well. And now there's a consortium out there that's actually working together to ensure that we actually can do that sharing. 
Now, the next logical step beyond just sharing data once it's on the ground is how do you create a standard that allows integration of mission systems? Thanks, think of radar, think of radio, et cetera, et cetera, more naturally into a platform that exists today. And so that's where open mission systems standard came about, or OMS. I'm sure you've seen that in the press. The idea was, can the tier one subs or subcontractors that are building defense-related mission systems work in a manner to standardize with the primes? So when there's a system that technology says it's ready to go, it's easier to integrate into a platform or when a platform has a subsystem on there that's not working quite well and you need to move on, it's easier to integrate. The answer comes back, it is. And the cost savings is about half. And the time savings is as is critical. It's about half on average. And each platform is different from an integration point of view. But the, the best part is this system can actually be operationalized even at more of a developmental level. It can be operational in a manner that would help. And you're seeing some of that today. So that kind of covers the basis of air, space, and command control associated with efforts that we had done over the years. And it's been a pleasure working with the program offices that were under me in that time frame and delivering this capability. And I think it's been very disruptive capability that we've delivered. And I know when the B-21 starts getting in full rate production and starting to get uh, operationalized, it will work even better. Now, one final thought when it comes to kind of wrapping this all up, everybody goes, okay, well, you're just the acquisition guy. Well, what I found was I talked about that teaming early on and the teaming with industry, everybody talks about it, but I'm talking about teaming where we actually are constructively trying to help the programs move forward. I know when I was there, I reached out to the CEOs at the time when we were doing the B-21, I reached out to uh, Wes Bush and I basically invited him to where we could get together every other month to review where the status of the program. And what I found was I said, don't view this as the teams are updating us because I can get an update and you can get an update anytime you want, independent of us being together. View this as, and listen intently to what the program managers are telling us. And oh, by the way, think about what we can do to help them. And on the industry side, Northrop can help do a lot more things that we can do in the you know development phase. But there's some things on the government side I can do that help you. So the idea here was, what can we do as senior leaders on the government and industry side to help the program execute? It worked really well. And then I went a step further, and I started to reach out to the um, using MAGCOM commanders. So at the time we were starting the B-21, Robin Rand, so General Robin Rand became Global Strike Commander. And I said, hey, would you like to have a similar type of a, an engagement every other month or so? He goes, we'd love it. Again, the thought was, don't view it as we're just getting an update. View it as, okay, what can we do as the leaders to instill culture at our level to help those programs execute? And I got to tell you, it worked. And I did that across all the MAGCOMs that we work with, Think Space and Think Command and Control. And that teaming really does well to help the programs execute. And everybody talks about teaming, but that, that's just some insight into how we did it. One of the things that you keep coming back to is programs that have been in the press. A lot of what RCO does involves programs that aren't in the press. Is it a lot easier to work on a classified program and make that work more efficiently than one that gets more public scrutiny? 
Well, I'm not sure it's the public that's driving this. In, in my mind, um, classified programs, unclassified programs or acknowledged programs to you know large versus small programs, it's all the same type of work that has to get done. You still need to have requirements. You need to have an acquisition authority to execute those requirements. And you need to have a level of request for proposal or a contractor that can actually build the weapon system that you want. That's true no matter how big the program is or how classified the program is. And oh, by the way, you follow under the same kind of guys and statutes across any one of those. So in my mind, it's not about the highly classified aspects that allows you to do that. That helps a little bit. But in general, you're still going to the Hill and to the Pentagon and briefing those programs. So you still have to follow a logical set of execution that makes sense from that teaming arrangement and be mindful of executing taxpayer dollars. The biggest program that we see coming for the Air Force right now is Next Generation Air Dominance. Again, not a program we can talk a lot about the specifics of, but are you seeing the lessons that you've built at RCO over 20 years being applied in that program to help it move forward more quickly? I am. In fact, the PEO of the program, a guy by the name of General Dale White, was the program manager for the B-21. So he is taking those lessons to heart. Going back to the beginning of the history of the program, it started out with the idea that this would be DOD-wide and became Air Force-specific. Are you seeing the other services and OSD as a whole adopting the lessons and frameworks you've developed? I have, and I think that materialized uh, greatly when, at the time, the DepSecDef, Bob Work, he brought me in and basically he pulled in a handful of the senior leaders of other services and said, hey, you need to create your own RCO. Remember the culture part. So the senior leadership has got to own this as much as the program managers or the mid-levels. And so when I was called in by each of the service leads, I basically brought in the charter and gave them the same story I'm telling you right now. Here's how you do it. And so I'd say some took it to heart, some didn't. I think the jury's still out on how well it's going to work services-wide. Notice I didn't say OSD-wide, because there's still a lot of process and staff within OSD and the services that do hamper execution of programs. Now, that doesn't mean that every program needs to have its own charter, but if the Department of Defense chooses to do that, that's one way of doing it. And finally, the Air Force is in something of a unique position right now with regard to acquisition, because you have a secretary in Frank Kendall, who is steeped in the acquisition community, has been involved with a lot of programs since the beginning, and may be the biggest acquisition mind since, say, Jack Gansler. You've got a SAF AQ, Andrew Hunter, who in his last couple of positions before coming to the Air Force, was focused on accelerating acquisition in various forums and an OSD acquisition chief in Bill LaPlante, who was the SAF AQ and knows all these programs, or at least many of them, in great detail. Is it easier to work in an environment like that with a lot of knowledgeable people, or is it easier to not have as many folks looking over your shoulder as you go forward? Well, I know all of them. I've worked for all of them. Uh, spent great great bit of time when uh, when uh, Frank Kendall was uh, the undersecretary for ATNL, and the program was under him. He was there for the original PDR, CDR, etc. So I know them real well. And what I find is 
in general terms, the support of those senior leaders is all about making sure that we execute to what we've all signed up to and agreed to. And that's in the charter, not expertise at all levels, because trust me, there's a lot of smart program managers out there, too, that understand how to do acquisition strategies. So the support not only by mid-level like I was and senior level like the SECAF or ATNL, or in this case, ANS now, that's what counts. And so if you're a good acquisition expert, as you just mentioned, those three individuals, that's great. That means the understanding goes a little bit further. But in general terms, the support comes with helping make decisions and moving forward, as opposed to, you know, admiring the problem and not moving forward, if that makes sense. Randy Walden ran the Air Force Rapid Capabilities Office and has worked on all of the programs that you know about and a lot that you didn't. Thank you so much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. Thank you, JJ. Have a great day. Thanks so much for listening to the Air Power Podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, hey, please tell a friend. Special thanks to GE Aerospace for powering the whole flight. We'll be back next week.